1: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and obviously my fabulous co-host as always is Christopher. Chris,
2: who we got on today. Morning, Alina. You, you just can't seem to get rid of me. <laughs> so uh, today we have Peter Apps, who is a writer and historian, as well as a global defence columnist for Reuters, British Army Reservist, and executive director for the think tank, for the project for the study of 21st century. Uh, and he's here today to talk to us about his new book, uh, Deterring Armageddon, a biography of NATO. Peter, welcome to History Hack.
0: Thank you. Um, no, it's really good to be here.
1: I'm actually really impressed with how you wrote this book.
0: Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that's obviously not immediately obvious to listeners to this podcast is that I'm uh, largely paralyzed from the shoulders down. So uh, when I was a 25-year-old uh, war reporter in Sri Lanka uh, in 2006, my minibus bounced off a tractor, I bounced off the windscreen, and I broke my neck. So I've been paralyzed from the shoulders down since then. So that means that I write with voice recognition software. And to add another slight sort of bit of a twist to this book, I got the book deal at almost exactly the same time that I mobilized into a full-time British Army job. Um, uh, an an office analyst based job, um. So I just wrote most of this book with voice recognition software in the evenings, alongside doing it doing a day job, uh, a, a a day job for the military. Um. So yeah, it's a it's 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 a, it's not quite your standard sort of uh, foreign correspondent uh, wandering through an archive story. Um. But it has worked, and we've managed to get it written in in, uh, in a bit of a, just over about a year and a year and a third, a year and a half.
1: I love it. Absolutely love this. And we're talking about NATO. This is something that we haven't talked about. So when your publisher got in contact, I was like, we must have this. Because we tend to, when we talk about the 20th century, focus on, well, World War Two, occasionally a bit of politics, but not NATO. And NATO is such a large and important, well, it's really, especially now, it's really important. So let's kick off into these questions why was NATO, that's a really simple question, why was NATO formed?
0: So, I mean, the NATO story really starts right at the very end of the Second World War, within days of the death of Hitler, uh, where Churchill is cabling Harry S. Truman, the U.S. president, and he's extremely worried because the U.S. army is leaving Europe uh, to go and fight in the Pacific, the Canadian army is going home, and the Russian army is extremely large and has just seized pretty much all of Eastern Europe. Um, and obviously in the West, um, uh, everyone wants to go home. Everyone wants to go back to work. Everyone wants to go back to their families. Um, and Churchill is extremely worried that, um, the Russians are going to potentially almost immediately move into, um, Western Europe. And if not in the years to come. Um, and of course this gets, you know, then the, the atomic bomb goes off, um, and the Americans have the only atomic bomb in the world. And that sort of reduces worries a bit. But not an awful lot, um, and um, there is a real question in the immediate aftermath of World War II about whether the u s is going to go isolationist. so if you think during the 1930 s the u s was 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 flirting quite hard with isolationism uh, and then came into the second world war and The question is whether the u s is going to do the same again um, and uh, Churchill is obviously very keen that they do churchill's kicked out of power very quickly. You then get uh, Ernest Bevan, the British foreign secretary um, working class boy from from Somerset. Um, a trade unionist uh, who is particularly keen to do two things. Firstly, to tie together Western Europe's democracies, which are barely democracies at all at this stage. Don't forget, we've just liberated most of Europe, so France, uh, Belgium, Holland, all in pretty much in ruins. Um, And he's also keen to try and tie them together with the United States. Um, And he starts building a network of alliances um, in the winter of 1946. Firstly, there's the Treaty of Dunkirk with the French, um, then the Treaty of Brussels, which ties together the Benelux countries as well, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. Um, And as that's going on... um, He manages to persuade and the Americans persuade themselves uh, that they need to take a much bigger role in the defense of Europe. First part of that's the Marshall Plan, which is a a large economic effort to rebuild rebuild Europe after World War II. And parallel to that, uh, two guys at the State Department, mid-level officials, not particularly senior, guys called Jack Hickerson and uh, Theodore Achilles, uh, decide that they are going to build an Atlantic alliance. And Jack Hickerson walks into his, his colleague's office and he says, I don't care if, um, entangling alliances have been worse than original sin since George Washington. We're going to build an alliance for, for the, an alliance with Europe in peacetime and we're going to do it fast. And that's exactly what they do. Um, Berlin airlifts going on at the same time. The Russians are trying to sort of get, get the, get the Western allies out of Berlin and during 1948 and 1949, um, the NATO treaty gets, ha- gets sort of beaten out in a bunch of committee rooms in Washington, D.C., uh, and gets signed in April 1949. Um, so it, it, it's sort of pulled together, you know, in a bunch of backroom deals, which really is, is how NATO has operated ever since. Um, and it really comes down to some quite, you know, this, this is a real example of how mid-level people can change history, because if, if, if some of these guys, you know, certainly Hickerson, Achilles, and uh, Bevan hadn't put the effort in, NATO wouldn't have come into existence, and the world might be very different now.
2: I mean, we've seen in, in, in the 20th century that getting nations to agree to do anything is, is difficult. I mean, even the League of Nations, even fighting World War II. So how, 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 how were they able to organize all the member states to get them to actually do anything without squabbling too um, much?
0: Um, so one of the early, early military leaders of, of NATO describes it as the whips of fear. So, you know, there is very, very, very real concern about the Russians, uh, yeah, you know, in, in, and it grows exponentially through 1945, 1946, 47, and, and through to 1949. Um, and that, you know, the, yeah, you know, you've got to remember that these, you know, governments have in exile in Europe. So people like, um, you know, the, the French government exile, people like Charles de Gaulle, people like, um, you know, the, the Belgians and so forth. Yeah. They've, they've lost their country. They've only just gotten back. Um, and there is a genuine fear that, you know, that, in, the, in, after the first war, there was a, there was 20 years of peace. It doesn't feel like that way in 1945, 1948. It feels like you might go straight into a new war with the Russians. Um, and that really sort of helps pull people together. So, you know, NATO, when it initially comes into existence in 1949, is just a treaty. It doesn't have any structures. It doesn't have any military command system. Um, it's really just a treaty that ties everyone together. Within a, within a couple of months of the NATO treaty being signed, the Russians, explode their first atomic bomb, which shocks absolutely everybody. Um, But it really takes the start of the Korean War in June 1950 to really scare people. So the Treaty of Brussels has created a thing called the Western Union, which is a sort of Europe-only NATO, which is commanded by, well, essentially led militarily uh, by uh, Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, great Second World War hero. And in June 1950 or May 1950, he warns his bosses that if the Russians attack, there will be chaos in Europe. Um, he tells, um, the, he tells his, he tells his bosses in London that he's told to hold the Rhine. He only has the forces to hold the tip of the Brittany Peninsula. Um, so he makes a lot of warnings about imminent defeat if the Russians attack. And then when the North Koreans attack with Russian support in Korea, that collapse really it becomes, you know, feels much more immediate. Um, and that's when, you know, as the Americans are massively increasing their defense spending again, sending troops to Korea, so are the Brits, so are some other people. Um, NATO really starts to get its act together and, Um, one of the decisions that comes together is that the North Atlantic Council will meet in permanent session, so there will be permanent representatives of each of the nations of the North Atlantic Council, which is obviously how NATO runs today. And the second, and it's suggested by a journalist, is that if you really want to grab the headlines, you need a superstar supreme allied commander. And that's when Dwight... D. Eisenhower, so the great, the U.S. commander in the Second World War, who's organized D-Day, all those things, is pulled out of retirement. He's running Columbia University at the time. He's put back into uniform by Truman and he's sent to Europe to become NATO's first Supreme Allied commander and to actually really start building that alliance at the beginning, at the start of 1951. So the Korean Wars kicked off six months earlier and Eisenhower turns up in January 1951 with the remit to come up with a plan to defend Europe and do it extremely fast.
1: Well, let's stick with Eisenhower here, and and this plan basically. So, I'm assuming that is what the spiral of strength is. Talk us through that.
0: So, essentially, um, well, so I don't think anyone else could have done what Eisenhower did. You know, Eisenhower has just essentially won the Second World War in Europe. He's incredibly respected, and even more importantly, all of the people who planned D-Day, he still has on speed dial. So, within like within less than a day of Eisenhower's announcement as Supreme Allied Commander, a guy called Colonel Brown of the U.S. Army Engineers, who is the guy who built Eisenhower's headquarters for D-Day, is setting up shop in the Hotel Astoria in Paris, and he's actually building what is now Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, which is the NATO military command system. So the fact that everyone has done this before makes life a lot easier. You know, secondly, um, you know, so Eisenhower and Montgomery obviously worked together during World War II, very complicated relationship, but a lot of people sort of slip, just, they slip back into their sort of semi wartime roles, except it's a very different task, you know, because um, this is an alliance in peacetime and it's designed to prevent a war and it's designed to prevent a war that pretty much everyone has just realized could destroy the world. So if you think about Oppenheimer in the movie, you know, there's this this real growth awareness in the late forties, early fifties that nuclear bombs are proliferating, so more countries have them, and they're getting a lot bigger, and they're getting a lot bigger very fast. And what Eisenhower does, he goes around Europe and he talks to all of the different European states, and um you know his his, his view goes back and breathes Truman and says, you know, the, the Europeans have got, you know, they should be okay, but they don't believe in themselves we need to start getting this spiral of strength go, grow, going up. And that basically means, you know, we need to build better capabilities to defend them. We need to convince them that we're not going anywhere. He thinks the Americans might be able to withdraw in about 10 years. So he thinks the Americans will need to spend about 10 years defending Europe, and then they might be able to pull back and Europeans will be able to defend themselves, which obviously never, ever happens. Um, and essentially through force of will, he goes round and cajoles and encourages uh, everybody to to pull together and build this thing and after about um a year and a half in role a bit less at the beginning of 1952 um he um decides he's going to go back to the u.s to run for president and he does it and this is something that feels a lot more sort of current from the perspective of 2024 because um the if he doesn't go back and take the republican nomination then the guy who's going to Um, a guy called Taft, who is another isolationist, is going to become the Republican nominee, and America might go isolationist and pull out of Europe just at this really critical juncture. So Eisenhower goes back, and of course he becomes president, and then throughout the 1950s, as these nuclear bombs get bigger, Eisenhower is obviously the president, and he really kind of, he views, I, I think Eisenhower viewed nato is one of the most important things he ever did he tells his son that it's you know if he gets this right it's it's the future of the world is at stake and the people who founded nato really really believed that in those 1950s
2: and the 1950s are to put it mildly quite tense between soviet and nato relations weren't they
0: yeah so you get i think there's several things going on in 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 the 1950s um the first is this you know the So if we'd had a nuclear war in about 1950, then, uh, Loris Nordstadt, who was, who was planning the nuclear offensive time, he'd also helped plan the, plan the nuclear bombings of Japan, reckoned they might have about 20 or 30 nuclear bombs for use in Europe. So that would be bad, but we're talking about, you know, multiple cities being, or bases being destroyed by nuclear bombs. We're not talking the sort of thing that starts to become really, really quite possible as the 1950s progress, which is, the move to hydrogen bombs and the russians get a hydrogen bomb very quickly after the americans within 3 or 4 years um you know we're talking about you know things that are, are a thousand several thousand times more powerful than than the bombs dropped on japan uh, you start getting this sort of popular culture you know begins to realize that the world might be about to end uh, you've got uh, stalin is stalin dies uh, he's replaced by sort of various people but ultimately it's 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 nikita khrushchev and um he's he you know he's prepared to take a number of, of a number of, of risks um which which culminate in, in 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 the Cuban Missile crisis but you get this building up of tensions throughout the 1950s um meanwhile europe is putting itself back together so you know all these countries that barely sort of existed as governments they start to have their own views on things uh, and that's quite hard and then of course in 1956 you have the suez crisis um where britain and france together with israel attack egypt in the against the wishes of the united states and you have this sh- The first huge schism within within NATO, Um, but at the same time, NATO is also sort of becoming a lot more mature. You get the first Secretary General is appointed in 1952, like Hastings Ismay. You start to build out that modern sort of much more bureaucratic NATO, Um, and it's sort of there are various points throughout the 1950s and, in frankly, every decade since, where people think NATO is about to fall over and die, Um, but it never quite does. Um, And as it gets to the end of the 1950s, there is this huge awareness. Um, of the, of the potential imminence of a catastrophic superpower nuclear war.
1: I'm going to give you a phrase and I think everybody's going to know what I'm going to ask next. Uh, <laughs> let's see if I can do this correctly. Ich bin ein Berliner.
0: Yeah. That's- so, I mean, it, it's, so you, you, you get to so, you know, it's, you know, the net, you know, think of these as a series of, you know, the 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 the, 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 the end of the 50s and the 60s see a real change um so you know throughout most of the 1950s um it's like it's the final act for the people who won world war 2 churchill comes back as prime minister eisenhower um the one character we haven't mentioned is charles de gaulle charles de gaulle comes back as president of france at the end of the 1950s with very complicated relationships with the united states you can never quite forgive britain and the united states for for having won the war essentially you know with you know, and and if, I mean, he had to, he he didn't like the fact he was dependent on them during the war and he doesn't like the fact that um french forces within nato are essentially commanded by us officers so that's always a tension um, and then you have these several cold war crises in quick succession so uh khrushchev decides he's going to put a stranglehold on berlin they're not going to try and blockade it again as they did during the berlin airlift um but you have the building of the berlin wall you have some threats to take over berlin and you have a new us president uh, john f kennedy And Kennedy comes into office more aware than any president before since the imminence of nuclear war. You have a, a, a face off over Berlin. And one of the interesting things about NATO at this point is that, you know, we've made this huge alliance, but actually it's the US calling the shots. The US, yeah, the US, Britain, and France, together with the West German government, you know, have some discussions over what to do about Berlin, but really, Everything is decided by the U.S. And that becomes really obvious during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So Cuban Missile Crisis lasts for about 13 days. For the first half of that, no one in NATO, including Loris norstadt who's the top U.S. general, has any idea that anything is going on. It's just happening in the White House. NATO gets briefed and the NATO lead the 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 big leaders of NATO so de Gaulle and Macmillan in the UK and Adenauer in Germany are briefed about half an hour before Kennedy briefs the world on television so there's a real feeling one of the ambassadors at the time that you know that, that all of these countries in NATO are just being knocked around by the US and there's real resentment over that but there's also a realization that they can't do very much about it uh, and then the Cuban missile crisis happens we don't have a nuclear war the two sides blink and as both khrushchev and kennedy start to sort of move towards talking to each other and there's an agreement they won't keep ratcheting up tensions the whole tone of nato rather rather uh, rather changes and you move into this kind of slightly weird period of of the of the the um the the 60s and the 70s um where there's much less of an imminent threat of war with the soviet union and you have a bunch of other divisions that that come that come center And we couldn't really talk about this period without mentioning one of the big divisions,
2: uh, the Vietnam War. How was NATO
0: involved in that? Well, it wasn't. And neither were, no no European countries sent troops to NATO. And that really, really upset successive US administrations. Um, Firstly, the the Johnson administration. Secondly, the, um, the Nixon administration. And so you get this real schism. But it's not just about Vietnam. You also get real economic divides. Essentially, the Europeans blame the US. For um, dominating the global economy, drawing jobs out of Europe, drawing resources out of Europe. The Russians go a lot quieter. Uh, Khrushchev's kicked out after the Cuban Missile Crisis because he's viewed as having taken too many risks. Um, and you start having these sort of very long discussions over what NATO is for. Still, you still, know, there's still this need to defend Western Europe. So there's still this. Large chunks of NATO troops in Germany, a British army of the Rhine. Obviously, there's, there's you know, large talks about, about nuclear cooperation. There's lots of stuff going on. Um, but it's basically quite a lot of rows. Uh, I mean, Jamie Shea, former, um, Deputy Assistant Secretary General of NATO describes the, you know, in, in the, in the 50s and 60s, the threats to NATO, or 50s and early 60s, the threats to NATO were external. They were the Russians. In the 60s and the 70s, it's internal divisions. Um, Nick, the relations between the Nixon administration and the Europeans are pretty poor. Um, relations between jo- Johnson never really doesn't really care about NATO at all. Uh, he doesn't really care about foreign policy that much. He's, he's he, and if, when he does, he's locked into Vietnam. So you get this sort of period of of of, of, of strain. Um, you get the era of détente. So the Americans are talking to the Russians um and um sometimes without the europeans and you also get the beginnings of this thing called the helsinki process which leads up to the helsinki accords in 1975 which is this massive negotiation process between all the warsaw pact countries so the warsaw pact the eastern bloc countries um that, that are essentially a response to nato so the soviet union build its own alliance and all the nato countries come together to discuss things like arms control and um sign a a big treaty called the Helsinki Accords in 1975 that amongst other things, commits the Soviet Union to um, a bunch of human rights reforms that it never, ever implements. Um, and that, of course, sets the scene for, for, for the sort of real drama of the 1980s, where where two things happen at once. You get a return to serious superpower nuclear tensions uh, And you also get um, the rise of unrest in Eastern Europe and the beginning of that process that will tear down the Berlin Wall, tear down the the Eastern Bloc uh, and usher in the more modern era. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off.
2: BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Let's
1: stick to that only because I can't get through a podcast without mentioning Poland. And basically the fall of communism in all of those blocks and that whole area. How does NATO respond to all of these events happening? Because this is it's we don't realize how quick it is, but it is really fast how this literally falls all apart.
0: So, so I mean, th- that happens really fast at the end of the 80s. But there's a whole bunch of drama that happens before then. So you start to get real unrest in Poland in 81 and 82. You know, the Soviet bloc starts to look really, really rocky. And the Reagan administration, unlike its predecessors, isn't trying to manage the Cold War. It's trying to win it. And that makes the Russians extremely nervous. So at the start of the 1980s, the um, Americans are doing much more aggressive military exercises. Um, the Russians are rolling out a new generation of, of short range nuclear weapons in Europe. So do the Americans. Um, uh, uh, the uh, the Pershing and cruise missiles, you get massive demonstrations in Western Europe about, against um, American nuclear arms, huge social divisions in a lot of European countries, including the UK, Greenham Common protests and so forth, and this real feeling that we're getting right back to the edge where we were in nineteen in in, in the Cuban Missile Crisis in the you know, early sixties, and nineteen eighty three, we very nearly have a nuclear war by mistake. So a bunch of NATO exercises, a bunch of other things are going on. This next slide called Able Archer. Another one called Reforger. Able Archery is a nuclear control exercise. Reforger is about bringing American troops into the continent. And it looks as though the Soviets are really quite worried that that is the beginning of an, of a NATO attack, surprise attack. Um, and, um, you know, that, that, that gets very edgy. Um, and at the beginning of 1980, so that's 1983. At the beginning of 1984, Reagan and Thatcher discovered that this has happened through, um, uh, through, through Soviet, uh, Soviet um, spy primarily Oleg Gordievsky, a, a KGB molder to the British. And at that stage, they and the Russians, the Russians get through a whole bunch of leaders very quickly, they will die of old age, we then you know, move towards the Gorbachev era, and tensions start to reduce very, very fast. But throughout most of the late 1980s, the assumption is the Soviet Union will evolve, but continue to exist. And then, as you say, everything collapses really, really fast in 1989. And, and suddenly the Berlin Wall comes down, um, you know, NATO... I mean, NATO has no plan for this. Um, you know, people are sitting open mouthed in NATO bases. Um, you know, and you know, no one has any idea what to do with this by the end of 1989. Um, and then of course in 1990, 1991, the Soviet Union unravels as well. And suddenly NATO is wondering what the hell it's supposed to do and, um, and what role it has next. Um, and yet you know, by the end of, you know, by 1990, 1991, you, know, you have this, a lot of history happens at once. And also, and this is really important for the present day. Not only do the Eastern European states and Central European states, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, all those get their independence, but the Baltic states break out of the Soviet Union. So Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. And pretty much immediately they start pushing for NATO membership and EU membership to protect themselves against Russia. And of course Ukraine also gets independence, and that starts a quite a long and ultimately very bloody psychodrama about whether they're going to join NATO and the West or whether they're going to stay under under Russia's orbit.
1: We're going to come to that actually. Uh, on our last question because that is really important for modern day nato but i'm going to let chris carry on because i just have to throw that comment in before we 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 move on to the next question
2: yeah uh, actually um you can probably edit this out but i was in the a pub quiz on tuesday and it was um who was uh the latest member member to join uh, country to join nato and um history hack regular sam jolly went pretty sure it's ukraine apparently we were both wrong it was finland <laughs> yes and sweden should but it's not getting in right carry on but uh, yes yeah, so i remember this from my, from my school days uh, in the in the mid 1990s um, nato started to get more involved in other situations that are happening in europe uh, like kosovo
0: yeah so the 90s are, the 90s are not what nato expected right so you know the soviet union collapses at the end of 1991 at the beginning of by the beginning of 1992 all these Russian submarines that have been knocking around the Baltic and say everything stops. The Soviet Union is literally imploding. I mean, it's gone. Uh, You know, the Americans are primarily worried about nuclear weapons for sale. The threat to Europe from the Soviet Union has gone completely. And yet, at the same time, you get this return of war to, to mainland Europe. So between 1945 and 1992, not a single European city was bombed or shelled. With military force, right? You have some crackdowns in Eastern Europe, things in in in, in East Germany, in the Czechoslovakia, in Hungary, uh, where you have some quite brutal crackdowns. But you don't get the sort of war that we would saw in Guernica or um, World War Two or the destruction of World War One, or of course what we now seeing today in Ukraine. That doesn't happen for an incredible for, for for a forty plus year period. It doesn't happen because of the threat of nuclear war. In 1992, that changes really fast as Yugoslavia starts to unravel, firstly with Croatia, then Bosnia, um, and NATO is sort of sitting on the sidelines initially because the UN sends in a peacekeeping force, unperformed, and NATO, um, a guy called Manfred Vorna, uh, who was the Secretary General at the time, is very keen to get NATO a role in that, and, and NATO starts offering to be essentially a contractor for the UN to initially enforce things like no-fly zones. Uh, in the mid-90s, it starts conducting some airstrikes in Bosnia, it helps bomb it's essentially bomb the service to the negotiating table uh, in the mid-90s. And then it sends in its own um, peace. It basically takes over peacekeeping in Bosnia at the end of 1995. Now, all of that is done under UN auspices. By the time we get to Kosovo in 1999, Russia and China have decided they don't like that kind of behavior anymore. And um, the intervention is much more Unilateral. Um, you know, we're getting into, into, into the beginnings of, of a, of a different kind of era. The Soviet Union has been gone for almost a decade. Uh, the West is very powerful. The US is the only superpower in the world. And, um, NATO is, you know, for a brief moment, the, the way in which that, that, that is implemented. Now, the Kosovo war is extremely divisive within NATO. It's extremely. Chaotic in some of the ways in which it's run and controlled, nearly ends up having a fight with the Russians at Pristina Airport because the Russians seize Pristina Airport the day that the war ends. Um, and at the end of the nineteen nineties, you then have this sort of feeling that sort of maybe maybe we don't want NATO to fight wars anymore. NATO has a very successful intervention in uh, Macedonia in the middle of two thousand and one, uh, and and actually sends a very small team to able to disarm a bunch of a bunch of Albanian militants and stop a war. So one of the sort of and. The, and and at that point, obviously, Bush is in the White House. And there's a real feeling that actually maybe we're moving into an era where Europeans will lead NATO missions. The Americans will step back and America can sort of get on with the sort of things that it's like to care about in the future, which is things like like China. Uh, and then, of course, on September 11th, 2001, the world changes really, really fast.
1: Question. This is slightly off topic. It, on topic, but slightly off topic. Why does NATO get involved in Rwanda? Why does it? Why doesn't it?
0: doesn't it uh so no so so uh i mean firstly it's out of area so the nato treaty is about is a self-defense treaty for nato nations and it specifically limits the nato area to the countries within nato now that doesn't include bosnia but there's never any suggestion of of, of nato countries getting involved out you know further away they also don't get involved in the falklands um nato is pretty nato's just about capable of fighting in europe there's always suggestions it might go elsewhere. After 9 11, there are suggestions that it should go into the Middle East properly. Obviously, it does eventually go to go to Afghanistan, um, but it doesn't really have the capability to intervene there. And but it was already knee deep in um, in in Bosnia um, by 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 1990 by 1994. Uh, but also, don't forget the real reason why the Americans don't go into Rwanda is that they've just had a disaster in Somalia. And that disaster in Somalia dramatically reduces their appetite to do stuff in the Balkans and in Rwanda. And things like the Srebrenica massacre, what happens in Rwanda, are a direct result of the Clinton administration not wanting to take that kind of risk with U.S. lives after the Black Hawk Down debacle. So that you know, while, while NATO isn't in Somalia or Rwanda, there's a real feeling of sort of despair in the mid-90s that that the West isn't stopping these things. And that then gradually turns into the willingness to intervene that you see in Bosnia and then Kosovo thereafter. This concept of a right to protect that also leads us through into places like Libya and so forth. That the the West, again, don't forget, you know, Russia's largely vanished as a power. China isn't that big yet. That the West has an obligation to intervene when it needs to um, because – um because of its power, but that's always really controversial within NATO. A lot of European countries don't like it. A lot of people in Germany are very uncomfortable about it. A lot of people in the Mediterranean are very uncomfortable about it. The Greeks are usually outright opposed. Uh, a lot of people in Scandinavia are pretty dubious. And um, so there's, there's 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 always real divisions in NATO over this kind of intervention sort of idea. Even you know ev- even in the nineties and even after nine eleven.
2: So we, we we've mentioned nine eleven. It had a massive effect on how we viewed the world and world security. So how did NATO have to step up after that.
0: Well so this we come we come back down to the importance of an individual here. So you know NATO no one asks for NATO after 9/11 but George Robertson former British Secretary of State for Defence uh, who is Secretary General at the time is determined from the get go that NATO should be involved and he's determined because he you know, the article five, which is the, the self defense clause of the NATO charter, which says an attack on one is an attack on all. So he phones up people like Colin Powell in the hours after the attack and says, you know, this is an article five moment. We're going to trigger, you know, this, this should trigger article five. And the Americans aren't particularly keen on this. They want to be able to re- respond unilaterally and on their own. Most of Europe isn't that keen. And again, through sheer force of will, George Robertson gets NATO to vote on article five. And um, so to, to, to vote essentially a statement declaring that they will support the U.S. in attacking whoever has attacked New York and Washington uh, within sort of 48 hours of the attack. And that's now talked of as a, as a seminal moment for NATO, but it was far from a foregone conclusion. And in fact, immediately afterwards, NATO isn't asked to do very much at all. It sort of does a bit of it, it doesn't immediately go into Afghanistan until 2006. It's immediately riven by enormous divisions over the Iraq war. So European countries deeply opposed to the invasion of Iraq, France, Germany and Russia, um, line up to try and block, um, uh, things like, um, UN Security Council resolutions supporting the invasion of Iraq. Um, the Americans are furious with NATO, um, but. They also see, and this is also the moment at which NATO expands much more far, much more quickly into Eastern Europe. And one of the reasons it expands into Eastern Europe, particularly the Baltic states, is the Americans want supportive countries for Iraq and their other Middle East ventures. And they know that by bringing in the Baltic states, Poland, all these Eastern and Central European nations, they will shift. You may remember Donald Rumsfeld's phrase about new Europe. You know, these countries are much more willing to fight in America's wars in the Middle East. Um, and they know exactly why they're doing it, because even in the early 2000s, The Eastern Europeans are convinced that Russia is coming back. Estonia finds itself on the, on the receiving end of one of the world's first major cyber attacks in 2007. Um, you get the Georgia war in 2008. You know, the Eastern and Central Europeans are always convinced that Russia is coming back as a threat and their hand, their engagement with Iraq and, 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 and indeed their enthusiasm for supporting the US and Britain and Afghanistan is always about buying goodwill. The Afghan war is really messy for NATO again. Um, you know, it goes in, it doesn't really have enough troops. Um, the Brits don't particularly cover themselves in glory in the early stages. Um, there's not really a lot of good intelligence. Um, you know, the, the early, the first two or three years of the Afghan war from, well, NATO takes over in Afghanistan in 2006 are really messy. And you end up with this sort of awkward period that lasts up until the sort of the mid 2010s where NATO is trying to work out whether it's a, it's a body for, for working with the Russians to do, to handle security problems outside Europe, or whether it's there to defend Europe against the Russians, and those involve quite a lot of rows and they run up until 2014 and, and the beginning of the, the the first war in most recent war in Ukraine uh, where again the Russians for the first time send tanks and so forth across a the border. they seize bits of Ukraine and NATO finally wakes up to the fact that it's actually going to have to go back to basics and get get recommitted to the defense of europe
1: well, they were worried about Russia in thousand nine hundred and forty five they were worried about Russia. Pretty much all the time up until now, and they still should be worried about Russia and what it's going to do. I mean right now it is a hot topic everyone's talking about it and let's let us talk about this because NATO is now facing huge problems. What kind of problems are they facing
0: well so it's both i mean it's both a problem and an opportunity if you're nato right because the you know the whips of fear. To quote, you know, to go back to the to the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties, are really powerful. You know, the Europe is getting its act together on defence in a way that it would never have done without you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So NATO is, you know, relevant again in a way that um, that it hasn't been since probably, I mean, the, the, probably the early nineteen fifties. I mean, the, the full scale invasion of Ukraine, that invasion that, that Putin launches in February of twenty twenty two, where he attempts to eat an entire country. The second largest country in Europe, in one go through force of arms, is the biggest shock NATO has had since the Korean War in nineteen in nineteen fifty. Um, you know, it is, it really is a sort of you know a, a, a come to Jesus moment. I remember talking to some Estonians in February of twenty twenty two, and don't forget we just lost the Afghan War at that point. So you know they had watched. The you know the, the the end of that Western intervention in Afghanistan. They watched a chaotic evacuation from Kabul, and then they were watching Western embassies flee Kiev in February of 2022. Only barely six months later, and they were not feeling good about um, whether Russia would have come for them. You know, they felt that if if Russia won in Ukraine quickly, which is what Putin expected, and quite a lot of people expected, you know, the Americans and the the Brits and most NATO states thought they would thought that Russia would would largely win and that we you know they would end up supporting a counterinsurgency rather than a than a, than a Kiev government attempted to survive, then the Baltic states thought they were next. And they were not sure that um, the U.S. was going to defend them. They were not sure that the European states had enough military material to defend them. You know, And then NATO gets its act back together at the beginning of last year. I think there was a lot of optimism that Russia was going to lose and lose big in Ukraine. Um, and a lot of kind of enthusiastic talk about both the U.S. and the European states and other, other places sort of arming u- arming Ukraine so that they could win. Uh, It feels a bit different from winter. You know, we're now in January 2024. Uh, You know, the a very large chunk of the armaments industry of Europe and the United States has been exhausted in Ukraine. They've used up pretty much all the anti-tank rockets, uh, a large chunk of the artillery shells. Um, And the Europeans are, you know, there are now, you know, we we now, there are now sophisticated, you know, there are now. NATO defense plans to defend the Baltic states that are way more sophisticated than anything people dreamed of before February 2022. There's been a large degree to which people have got their act together. Um, but there is also a a, a bunch of unanswered questions um, about where things go. And the other, the other thing that, of course, takes us back to the beginning is there are real questions over where the U.S. will go in the future. Obviously, we may get Donald Trump back at the end of 2024. But even if we don't, we're seeing a new generation of politicians in the U.S. who are extremely isolationist some of them want to abandon europe so that they can confront china some of them want to abandon europe and taiwan so they can defend the united states but the odds of there being a proper no duff isolationist president of the us in the next 25 years really very high um and uh you know you, you know, what happens to europe in the event of a, of a chinese attack on taiwan you know, Russia and China moving a lot more closely together. Russia's also now getting artillery shells from North Korea. Um, obviously you've now got some really quite dubious stuff going on in the Mediterranean. You know, the U.S. is now, is now, is now stuck backing Ukraine and Israel. So it's really looking very overstretched. Um, in Europe, we're finally seeing Germany step up. Germany has agreed to, to, uh, had to significantly increase its troops in the, its troops in the Baltic states um you know it significantly increases defense spending it'll be the largest defense spender in europe um, and is is if the u.s is sort of pulling back from europe germany is really stepping forward um the um the poles and the baltic states are, are, are and and the norwegian uh, the, the nordics the norwegians the Finns, the swedes really thinking very seriously about all of society defense um you know discussions over you know the ukrainians have introduced conscription they won't let their men folk leave the country now you know We've never grown up under a world where we thought conscription might be plausible. Now mainland Europe is thinking those thoughts again. And, 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 you know, that keeps a fairly unified NATO in the short term. Um, but there are some real sort of worries in the long term. And, and the real worry, in, in particularly in the Baltic states on that sort of proper eastern flank is that if once the Ukraine war stops, or once, once whatever, you know, Putin stops using up all that military power in, in, um, in, in, in Ukraine, that Russia will start rearming again, and this time it will rearm to do the one thing it's never managed to do since 1949, which is to take a bite out of a NATO country and humiliate the alliance. Um, and that gives us a fairly sort of bunch of fairly risky things.
1: I'd like to say they'd be stupid enough to attack Poland again, considering we've just completely and utterly rearmed up. To, I think we Poland now has the largest army in Europe, and because they're ready, uh, they're not going to allow to happen what happened in 1939 so uh and we know that
2: go
1: sorry go
0: for it go well no i mean i think you know the polls the bolts are, are are pretty serious about this but do bear in mind that you know the u.s you know the u.s you know there are plenty of u.s senior officials who've been talking on the record about worrying about a, a chinese move against taiwan as soon as 2025 2026 2027 you know, the, the U.S. focus is shifting to Asia, and that is a very different place for Europe. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a, there, there are, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, P- Poland is, is, is putting a lot of effort into rearming, um, you know, the, the Baltic states, but the Baltic states have not a lot of people spread over, yeah. you know, not a large amount of area. And you don't have to seize that much of an area to start really humiliating places. So, for example, there's a city called Narva on the Ukraine Russia, sorry, on the Estonia Russian border. Um, you know, majority Russian speaking, if the Russians seized that city, NATO would sort of be obligated to try and get it back. And if it didn't do so, then that would raise questions over what would happen elsewhere along the rest of that very long border. So, you know, there is, you know, I I think one of the conclusions of the book is that the next 25 years, particularly when you bear in mind the risk of a war in Asia, um, have the potential to be the riskiest of NATO's, you know, of of NATO's history so far. Um, You know, I think the odds of the Russians trying uh, trying some form of land grab in Europe at the same time as, as a war breaking out in Asia is quite high. They'd almost be daft not to. Um, so, you know, there is a real there's a real kind of edge to where things sit at the moment. And again, you know, NATO's destiny isn't really in its own hands. You know, whether Xi Jinping wants to invade Taiwan in the next 25 years is probably the biggest single question for the future of NATO. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a real kind of, you know, Real edge, but a bit like the 1980s, it depends on who you talk to. So, you know, people who think about this all the time are really, you know, think this war might be coming. Most people probably don't. Uh, and quite a lot of places, you know, Poland hasn't been having a public conversation about conscription, for example, because the government hasn't really wanted to. um You know, exactly where one sits on those things is, is quite complicated at the moment. And, and the real sort of 10,000 pound gorilla in the room is, as always, is the United States. We don't know what the u.s is going to look like over the next 25 years but it will probably be very different to to that kind of atlanticist u.s we've seen for for most of the since 1945
2: yeah it does look from the american politics i've been following it does look like they want to be more isolationist there's lots more we need to talk about america's jobs we need to talk about our borders we need to be talking about this like well hang on you wanted to be the global police force you you can't can't just back back walk away from the table i think i
0: think I think a lot of Americans don't. And the other thing that we should point out is that NATO is larger now. It's more than 30 countries and making decisions is harder. So the um, immediately after the invasion of Ukraine in 2022, NATO invited Sweden and Finland to join. And then Turkey blocked both. It's now allowed Finland in, but it still hasn't allowed Sweden. Um, You know, there is a real risk that in the event of an invasion of Europe that Moment we had after 9 11, where all the countries agreed to trigger Article 5 doesn't happen. That a couple of countries say no. Now, there are a whole bunch of arguments over whether you actually need to have a vote on that, and different European countries sit in very different positions. But NATO is the largest, most unwieldy, hardest to get decisions made in situation that it's ever been in. And that is potentially only going to get worse. There are several countries, Hungary, Hungary, you know, uh, Viktor Orban, you know, friend of Putin. The Turks, who are currently blocking two British minesweepers going through the Dardanelles to be supplied to the Ukrainian Navy because they won't let them through under the Treaty of Montreux. Uh, Slovakia now has a sort of softly pro-Putin government. Bulgaria had one for a bit. Um, And then the U.S. is fairly clearly going to switch between very, you know, cautious on NATO you know, borderline sort of abandoned Europe governments in the vein of Trump and um, democratic administrations that may hold a number of views. So, you know, NATO is a collection of countries. Those countries have to agree to do stuff. And that is getting harder all the time. But if we didn't have NATO, we need to invent it. So, you know, it's, you know, I think that the whole point of NATO was to stop a really bad thing that everyone worried about happening. It will probably still work, but it's going to be a pretty there's gonna be some dicey moments. And again, one of my sort of realizations on writing the book is that you know there's gonna be some Cuban Missile Crisis type moments coming up in the next you know ten, fifteen, twenty years, and probably some nineteen eighty three type moments where we're a lot closer than we think, and we're not really gonna know about it until possibly several years afterwards.
1: You literally just answered my next question, Peter. Way on the ball here. I think this has been a very productive and a very interesting gap in the history that we've we've needed to fill on this podcast. So I'm very grateful you've come on to on to talk to us.
0: Yeah, I mean one of the, one of the one of the feelings that this is you know writing the history of NATO feels like sort of inhaling from a hosepipe seventy five years of crises and then realizing that you're in the biggest crisis of all of them at the end you know it's um it's been a really interesting project, but it's um you know it's it's definitely history, but it's also definitely definitely current affairs
2: absolutely and and uh, I really quite enjoyed reading the book um just would you mind uh reminding everyone the title and when it's available where they can get it from
0: absolutely so it is called deterring Armageddon uh, a biography of nato uh published by um uh, Wildfire, which is an imprint of Headline, which is an imprint of Hachette. Uh, it comes out on February the 1st, uh, at least in the UK, and comes out slightly later in the US and Australia. It will also come out in on Audible, uh, also on February the 1st, and, um, and yes, yeah, should be available from all good bookshops, many mediocre bookshops, and um, online as well. And we'll, we'll try and get it onto the uh, History Hack bookshop as well, so that with every sale,
2: um, you get a bit more of a slice of money. Uh, um, Jeff Bezos would normally steal for own north atlantic treaty that he's probably trying to build possibly
0: allegedly <laughs> no that all sounds excellent no it's been it's been it's been really fun so thank you very much both of you it's been uh, it's been 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 really enjoyable for my end yeah thanks, thanks for coming on it's, it's been really good
1: our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book this is just a small taster As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters, so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.